Remember seven days ago when I talked about how being soft on the kiddos actually hurt the kiddos? Well, the government didn't pay attention to that lesson at all because last week they promised to give the kiddos free money. Student loan forgiveness just before the midterm elections. What a brilliant political strategy to buy votes. But who benefits and what are the details? And more importantly, what should Christians do whether or not they have college debt? Plus, a Hollywood actor studies a four film about someone who loved Jesus. And wouldn't you know, once again, the Hollywood actor starts to love Jesus. How cool is that? This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hatcher Live. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome in. 7.30 at night on Tuesday, and this is the weekly show where we discuss the things that you shouldn't talk about. God and government, politics, you know, so that's what this is about. I'm Tim. I'm your host. Welcome to the show. If you aren't subscribed yet, if you haven't liked the video yet, well, maybe wait until the end of the show to like the video, but if you aren't subscribed yet, give the beard some love. Give that beard some love, okay? And make sure that you are also clicking that notification bell so that you can get notified every time we go live. It is episode uh, five of season six. And younger generations, I want to talk to you once again because I'm getting old enough to see just how much the choices of the older generation affect you. Uh, younger generations, you don't have the power, the political clout. The, you know, you don't have the money. You don't have a lot of the things that a lot of the older generation worked years to get. And so I get it. You look to people of the older generation to help you out, to bail you out to give you money, to, you know, give you the taxes of the rich and hand them to you and all, all that sort of thing. And so sometimes it is very common for young people to look to the government to say, help me. And when the government helps them, they think that the government's actually helping them. But is that necessarily true? And that really is where the rubber hits the road. Because all this week, since last Wednesday, the president came out and said, I'm going to forgive, quote unquote, forgive student loan. There's been a lot of talk on social media, a lot of talk in the news about this whole policy. A lot of people hate it. A lot of people love it. What, though, is it really going to do? That's what I'm going to do on this episode of The Deep End. I'm going to do a full deep end dive into that topic. But first, some deep end uh, news. Let's go there. Deep, 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 deep end news. The news you choose if you could choose news. So here's what I see happening uh, more and more in the future of this whole generation that we're living in. Uh, doctors, pediatricians, hospitals, healthcare systems, therapists, psychologists, counselors are going to be brought to court. And they're going to be brought to court because they mismanaged truth or ignored it. And they misdiagnosed young people and they hurt an entire generation of kids who were temporarily confused about their gender. So I bring you this piece by the New York Post. Check this out. A uh, woman sues psych a psychiatrist for approving gender transition uh, just after one meeting. So this person, an Australian woman who transitioned to male before realizing it was a mistake, is suing the psychiatrist after the psychiatrist approved her female-to-male hormone treatment following a single meeting and later signed off on two surgeries to remove her breasts and uterus. How sad is that, by the way? Now, nearly a decade later, uh, this person's last name, Langadinos, who no longer identifies as male, is suing Tuhi, that's the, that's the therapist or psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry, for professional negligence, claiming that he greenlit her hormone therapy even after she told him she suffered from social phobia. She also alleges that he was negligent in not recommending she get a second opinion before her hysterectomy. So I do see that this is going to happen more and more. 
Don't you? I mean, it's going to happen. The lawsuits that are going to come against Boston Children's Hospital and other hospitals in America, particularly because we are so happy, um, they're going to start dribbling and dripping into um, you know our, our, our social environment. And then there's going to be a monsoon. The dam is going to break at some point because... All the numbers that bear this out of how you know 25% of kids now identify as transgender, whole entire classrooms of you know 12 year old kids are saying they're transgender. Um, these reports, these newer reports, it's becoming this fad, this popular thing. We have two months to celebrate. You got the month of November where it celebrates LGBT pride and all that kind of stuff, and then you got the month of June which celebrates all the parades and all that kind of stuff. So you constantly reinforce to kids that this is the cool way to live. Uh, on top of that, there is a lot of psychological evidence that points to the fact that pornography and it's particularly hardcore porn has a powerful influence on convincing young girls to be boys because they look and they see and it's accessible everywhere to watch hardcore pornography where a man is literally choking a woman in the midst of a sex act which i don't even understand where the desire or the you know the the allure is to this kind of content um a woman a young girl looks at that and says if that's femalehood, if that's sex, I want nothing to do with it. I think I'll be a man, right? So there's this whole host of evidence that, that the, the porn industry is pushing this forward as well as the educational system, as well as the political system, as well as the media and pop culture. But there's going to be a dam breaking at some point. And, and this, again, it just reminds me of the importance of truth in a world filled with lies. Make no mistake, Jesus says that the world is under the domain of the evil one, that he is the father of lies. He's a liar from the beginning, and every word out of his mouth is a liar. And he does, as of right now, own and manage the governments of this world. Now, God is over him, I get it, but God is allowing him to wreak havoc on the sons of disobedience at, while at the same time saving for himself a people from all nations that will not listen to the lies of the devil. But let us not be misled and let us not be lax in our embrace of and search for the truth. The truth sets us free from the lies of our age. You cannot have this surge of gender dysphoria and the consequential administration of drugs such as Lupron, a chemical castration drug for pedophiles, and doctors and therapists too intimidated by the lies of the age to stand up for truth on behalf of their patients and then not have the requisite fallout of lawsuits abounding where professionals who were too afraid to speak the truth are now going to be paying dearly for it with who knows untold amounts of money. I, I think this is where it's headed. Honestly, I kind of hope it goes that way because this is ridiculous and Someday the culture will wake up. Anyway, in a world where professionals cannot speak truth, Christians must. And that's why I do this show. And that's why we have to speak truth to something else. And that truth we got to speak about right now is Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Uh, the idea here is, yippee, uh, free money from the government. Here it comes. Biden is writing an executive order to cancel ten to $20,000 of student loan debt. How should Christians think about this? What are the facts about this? Who does it benefit? And what do we do in response to it? Let's do deep endonomics. Let's just 
think that George Washington looks good with a beard. I mean, I just think a beard improves a lot of people's looks. Not everybody's. Mine, <laughs> but not everybody's. So yeah, this is the news out of the AP. Biden forgives student loan debt, extends freeze. You won't have to pay your student loans until December 31st or after the year, uh, year is over. Uh, he did not actually forgive anything. Like, let's get the language right. This is, again, the news reporting, and we cannot trust the news. So let's get the language right. Biden transfers student loan debt to others and extends the freeze. That's what has happened. This is uh, a promise of his campaign when he was running for president. Uh, he catered to the young. He catered to the students. He saw the writing on the wall. He saw the uh, millennial generation, one of the largest generations of America's history in terms of population. He saw the outstanding student loan debt. He saw the rising price of education. Uh, and then he just pulled the trigger. He said, look, the midterms are coming up. I need my party to win some slots to make sure that we can continue to control Congress. And so let's Let's throw the kiddos a bone. Let's throw them a lifeline here. Now, this student loan relief, if you want to call it that, uh, forgiveness, again, not forgiveness, but transfer to people who paid their student loans or who make too much money to, bene to benefit from this policy, or even, say, some American veterans, and I want you to think about these people, who were wounded in battle fighting for our freedom or perhaps even a senseless foreign war. And they gave up literally arms and legs for the promise of the GI Bill. And now what do we say to those people? What do we say to the guy who lost both of his legs from the knees downward uh, because he couldn't afford college and decided to go the army route to afford college? And now it turns out if he had just stayed home, not fought in that foreign war and waited for the government to hand him money, he'd have it right now. Like that's just the tip of the iceberg for the problems that I see this policy creating. I don't think it's going to be the win that the, uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden think it is. But let's do some details. Let's do some deep dives into this. Deep end dives. Okay. Uh, the program. Let's unpack that. Student loan borrowers will receive up to $10,000 in forgiveness if they earn less than $125,000 annually. That's personal annual income. Couples, $250,000 annually. So, so right away, your question probably is my question. Is this for poor people or is this for really upper middle class, even rich people? Like $125,000, $250,000 annually as a household income. We're going to compare that to the median household income in America. And I want to ask you if you think that that's for the poor and disadvantaged among us. Uh, anyway, going on, it says students who borrowed money through the Pell Grant program receive up to $20,000 forgiveness. Borrowers receive their payments put on pause until um, the end of 2022. And then a plan is underway to craft a new repayment plan for those outside the forgiveness qualifications threshold, including reducing payments for undergraduate borrowers, cracking down on institutions that unfairly raise tuition. Now that I can get behind, by the way. <laughs> and making higher education more affordable. That is really a great point uh, because the cost of higher education has astronomically ballooned and way out of proportion with the rest of the costs of living in America. Like, like inflation over the last 40 years is somewhere around 30% total. Uh, most of that coming from the last two years. <laughs> but the cost of an education has ballooned three times, more than three times, six times that amount, 
Like, it's five to one, the inflation rate for higher education costs over the last 40 years in this country. That's insane. And at some point, we have to say, the system's broken. Uh, not, not the, the answer is not to just put a Band-Aid on the wound. It's got to be cleansed. It's got to be disinfected, right? But again, classic political moves never deal with the systemic problem. They just deal with the surface issue that is hurting one particular voting block of the demographic. So let's get into the reasoning behind the White House's decision to forgive student loans. This is from their own study. Since 1980, the cost of both a four-year degree from a public or private institution has nearly tripled even after accounting for inflation. So again, that's... that's um, that's compounded inflation, right? So tripled beyond the regular inflation rate, which again, makes it about a five to one ratio of the cost of higher education to the cost of every other, everything else that you pay for. Pay for. Uh, in 1980, the price of a four-year education was $10,000 a year. By 2019 to 2020, it was 29, almost $29,000. This is from the National Center for Education Statistics. Between 1980 and 2019, college fees rose 169%, while wages for young workers ages 22 to 27 went up uh, 19% over that same period. So you see the dichotomy between the cost of the fees and the wage the earner or the worker or the college grad uh, would expect to get paid. Uh, then federal support for college loans has not kept up. Pell Grants once covered nearly 80% of the cost of a four-year public college degree. Now, Pell Grants are for those who are very low-income borrowers. Uh, I think they are 0% interest loans. Now they only cover a third of the cost. So you go from, you go, this is just basic math. You go from a 0% interest rate loan that covers 80% of your college loan to it only covers a third. Um, that, that There's a problem there, and it's not that there's not enough money being lent. It's the government got behind these loans and guaranteed these loans and and encouraged these loans. And the schools said, we should raise our rates because look at all the money flowing in from the government. I mean, from these government subsidized or government empowered. I don't want to say subsidized, government empowered loans like this again is government getting involved in something that it should never have gotten involved in. Then, according to a Department of Education analysis, the typical undergraduate undergraduate student graduates with nearly twenty five thousand dollars in debt. So serious problems. I get it. Uh, and if you are one of these people with $25,000 in debt, and I understand it seems insurmountable. It's not, it's not insurmountable. I'm telling you, I know from experience from many, many people that I know and people that I've had on this show uh, that have talked about the fact that they climbed out of uh, ed uh, educational debt and student loan debt and are now <clears throat> building wealth for themselves and their children. It is not insurmountable, but I get that it is a problem right now. And I would say that the human condition tends to over-exaggerate the, the particular problem they face in the moment, right? We do this all the time. You have a problem now, and that problem just balloons in your mind because it's here now, and you don't think long-term about its solution. You don't think long term. Like if I just start digging now out of this hole, <clears throat> in two years, I'll be two years into getting out of the hole. But unfortunately, we are a momentary mindset generation. We are a scroll past it mindset generation. And we don't understand a lot of times how life works. Okay. Quick, um, 
anecdote for me personally. I, I remember when my wife and I got married and we got into debt early for a house that we probably shouldn't have bought, but we bought. And then we were like way behind in terms of debt and just life. And we thought, man, everybody's going to get ahead of us and all that kind of stuff. You know, you start playing with your mind, and all that kind of stuff. And then I remember that my parents actually sat us down and they told us their story of how much debt they got into. My father tried to start a farm. The farm did not do well. He had to sell the farm. Um, he had to go and take another job doing something outside of what he studied for in college, as a lot of people do. And they were in massive debt in much more debt uh, than my wife and I. And they just slowly climbed out of it. They cut you know, their budget. They they determined that they were going to get out and they did. They got out of debt. And guess what? So did we. We got out of debt. I got out of $55,000 worth of debt in, I think it took me seven years. $55,000 worth of non-mortgage debt I got out of in seven years. How do you do it? You start digging. But again, you have to have a long-term perspective. So, so there's a problem and I get that the problem is kids are in debt. The question now, though, has to be asked and answered, who will this help? Because the reporting is mixed as to who's going to benefit from this program. And this bothers me and it should bother you. So one news outlet named Axios reports that despite what critics say, student loan debtors who stand to benefit from the most from this relief plan aren't exactly latte sipping elites. And then it says further, 90% or nearly 90% of those benefiting from the policy earn less than $75,000 according to the White House. Now, let me stop here and make a point. The same people who tell you, and this is a fact, it's said, it said all the time, that poor people are disadvantaged because they don't have access to the internet and therefore cannot get a license or an ID and therefore cannot have, we cannot require ID for voting for these people are the same people now who expect those same poor people to apply for Pell Grant relief through the online application program. How do these people see these people really? Are they too stupid to go online to get an ID or too stupid to go online and apply for this benefit? Because the Pell Grant benefit for the, for the lower income people, they have to get online and apply. If they can't get online for an ID, how can they get online for the application to get the debt relief? Hello? Uh, government getting involved. Anyway, this article also says a second, a significant percentage of student loan debtors who didn't get a four, uh, didn't get a four year degree. That means they also don't get the income boost of a bachelor's degree. Okay. A couple things from this. Um, this bakes into the cake, the argument that a bachelor's degree automatically boosts your income. That is not always the case. I have a lot of people in my church, no college degree. They're the biggest givers because they also make the most money. I got people in my church who never went to college at all. I got people who went to the wrong college, got saved, got reoriented in life, went to night school, got a different degree, got into a different business, took them years. Now they're enormously wealthy because, you know, the, 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 the slow step-by-step -step process of building a life financially actually does work if you are determined and self-disciplined. But this idea, the, 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 the um, Disney storybook promise Get the bachelor's degree and increase your income automatically. Your income has a lot less to do with where you studied and what school you went to than how hard you work and how motivated you are and how helpful you are to the people who offer you a job. <laughs> I can't stress this enough. I am an employer and I was an employee and I will tell you that employers, and I know this for a fact, rarely care where you went to school. We rarely look at your GPA. We don't care. 
We care, can you get the job done? Do you have a record of faithfulness? Do you have a record of loyalty? Do you have a record of hard work in your past? Do you have references? Do you have people who can speak for you? Do you have this mindset of, I'm going to do a job well, whether or not, uh, you know, whether or not I have the college degree. Like that's, there's no magic potion to making money. I mean, <laughs> there's a few people who figured out a couple of tricks, but most people just hard work, long range view, discipline. Secondly, this report from Axios is from the White House, so I'll take it for what it's worth when the White House is uh, formulating its own report on what the help will actually do, who will actually help. And then again, about half, about half of the beneficiaries did not finish college, do not have a degree, but still have the loans, which in my opinion makes it worse because now we are paying off loans for a product that wasn't even delivered. Uh, that's, that's like um, someone taking out a car loan, not paying it, the car gets repossessed, and now that person's neighbor has to pay for his neighbor's non-existent car. Uh, that's pretty much what's, what this is. We're paying for <laughs> we're paying for education that wasn't even completed for about half of the borrowers. That should borrow. That should bother everyone. But anyway, this is Axios reporting uh, that that the people will benefit seventy five thousand dollars or less uh, a year. By the way, that number itself seventy five thousand dollars or less. These are poor people as well. $75,000 a year is still $8,000 higher than the median household income in our country. So a person making $75,000 a year, married to another person making $75,000 a year, stands to benefit with this, with this benefit. They're $150,000 a year household, and the median household income is $67,000 a year. So they're almost triple the median household income, and they are the quote unquote, poor people, the numbers don't add up. This is why you got to do your own research. So I bring you to the Washington Post, which amazingly, I'm literally shocked to report this. They actually say the opposite of what Axios claims, that the plan will actually most greatly benefit people in the top 60% of income distribution. And according to the Brookings Institute, half of the roughly $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt is owed by graduate students, such as lawyers, doctors, and uh, professors. This is directly from the article. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimated that roughly 70% of the benefit will go to those in the top half of the income spectrum. This is the Washington Post. The Washington Post basically carries water for Joe Biden, carries water for the entire Democratic Party. And here they are honestly delivering the truth. And, and then, the, then this article ends by saying, but these analyses hinge on estimates of the annual income of potential beneficiaries, not their wealth. Listen to this line. College graduates with high debt burdens often make relatively high salaries, but don't have significant assets in part because of those loans. <laughs> Just think about this. What they're saying is, you know, the lawyer, I know he makes $150,000 a year. I know the lawyer makes $150,000 a year, but you know, his student loans keep him from having that 75 inch TV. So come on, come on, Mr. Plumber. Come on, give him some money. Seriously, help the plumber, help the lawyer. Uh, and then when he sues you because your neighbor's car got repossessed, uh, the, the joke's on you. Right? <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, not to be missed, by the way, um, is the fact that this seems like it's a compassionate program, but if we're honest, even according to the Washington Post's own reporting, this is, looks like a bailout for the rich lawyer kids who went to Harvard and Yale. Not to mention the people who work in the White House. 
This from the National Review, majority of White House staffers eligible for Biden student loan forgiveness. Again, quote unquote, forgiveness. Uh, interesting little nugget from the article. Washington, D.C. residents have more outstanding student loan debt than residents of any other city in the country. And according to a 2021 report from the business of insurance company advisor Smith, which found that the average borrower has $55,000 in unpaid student loan debt and 16% of DC residents had unpaid student loan debt. So it does underscore the reality, by the way, that the more education that you get does not necessarily make you smarter because the people with the highest amounts of educational debt work in Washington. (laughs) Some of you missed it. Rewind the show and you understand what I just said. Anyway, um, just so you know, Washington, D.C. also is home to the highest median income of any state. And it's not a state. It's an area. It's not even close, by the way, to the second place listed highest median income state, which is Maryland, by the way. <laughs> what does Maryland have in common with D.C.? It's where the D.C. lawyer lobbyist works. Uh, so this, again, is looking more and more like a move that benefits those rich bureaucrats in Washington who got, a, who got a college degree so they can tell the country how to live and fight for climate change because the world has 12 years left and your taxpayers will turn the global temperature down by one degree in the next 250 years. That is what it looks like more and more to me. But please don't take just my word for it. Uh, these facts are coming from CNN uh, eliminating $10,000 of student loans per borrower will cost about $300 billion in 2022 and $329 billion by 2031 if the policy is renewed each year. Less than 32% of the funding would benefit Americans in the two lowest income uh, quintiles, while 42% would benefit those earning more than $82,000 a year. Again, not benefiting poor people. And then, by the way, Americans haven't paid student loans since March of 2020 since the pandemic began. Yet Americans currently right now have the highest level of consumer debt on record. By the way, the only time it was this high before was in 2008, right before the financial crisis, the mortgage crisis, which begs the question, if our debt is still that astronomically high, what were borrowers doing with all that time that the government gave them to save money and not pay their student loans in the first place? (sighs) I mean, it's just, Again, the human condition is the human condition and more on that later. But I want to take on something. This idea that I'm about to present to you was sent to me by uh, a, a staff member in our church. It was a tweet by a progressive Christian on why the atonement of Jesus Christ offered through his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the world, American and non-Americans alike, is really the heart of Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program. I kid you not. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you John Pavlovitz. Now this guy, uh, conservative Christians, he says in his tweet, are fully enraged at Student loan forgiveness, missing the irony that their entire professed religion is based on the idea of canceled debt. Way to lose the plot, kids. Then he says, not to mention the year of Jubilee. And he quotes an article there from Christianity.com on the year of Jubilee. Okay, all I have to say first to this is, tell me you don't understand the gospel without telling me you don't understand the gospel. (laughs) First off, who is John Pavlovich? He's a progressive Christian that is 
really not a Christian anymore. They, he deconstructed out of Orthodox Christianity. He was fired from a Methodist church for questioning the faith, for questioning the orthodoxy, according to him. Uh, was shoved into the limelight for a post following Donald Trump's election that was retweeted by Katy Perry and now seeks to lead other Christians into his apostasy by embracing LGBTQ ideology, denying the atonement, etc., etc. His blog is literally filled with posts obsessing over former President Trump. And ironically, he wrote a book called If God is Love, Stop Being a Jerk, um, which kind of begs the question as to why he disowns friends from his pinned tweet here who voted for the person that he didn't like. Isn't that kind of being a jerk yourself? But back to the tweet, I love the fact that he just kind of lumps everyone who disagrees with the policy into the category of quote-unquote conservative Christians, his, his favorite target, of course, on his blog. When, when reports are that even 50% of Democrats do not like this policy, people like Lawrence Summers, who worked for Bill Clinton and Obama, uh, tweeted out, this is a bad idea. It will increase demand and cost of higher education. People like Paul Begala of CNN, who said, with this money, bad policy, it could have funded pre-K, uh, it could have funded you know, universal pre-K, forgive medical debt, which it would have been debt that was not freely entered into. Uh, interesting that even Paul Begala uh, is saying things like this. And it's just kind of like begging. It's just kind of like showing the fact that, you know, people are divided on this policy, not by their ideology of faith, but their, their politics. And I think I, I need to address this tweet theologically because I bet a lot of Christians will fall for it. A couple of things. Number one, if you want to equate your sin, which was unpayable, your sin was unpayable to God, to $10,000 of student loan forgiveness, you don't know scripture. <laughs> your sin is insurmountable. Otherwise, instead of coming and shedding his blood, Jesus would have just said, do the following, right? He, he, God knew from before the ages began that no one would be able to pay back their eternal debt to God. We offended a holy and just and righteous God. Isaiah 59 says our transgressions are multiplied before God. Uh, Romans 6.23 talks about the fact that the wages of sin is death. Sin is so bad, it kills us. We deserve to die for it. Hebrews 12 calls sin a weight that easily entangles and besets us and holds us back. Uh, you you minimize the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ when you equate it to this fractional for forgiveness or relief of your student loan debt. Secondly, theologically speaking, against uh, in response to John Pavlovich's thought, Jesus forgave your sin at his cost, not your brother's cost. Like, he didn't come to earth and then stick a needle in James's vein to pay for John's sin. Like that's not what Jesus did. He took the payment on himself. Finally, you know, I just kind of get creeped out when Trump supporters make Trump a messiah. Isn't this kind of like making Joe Biden a messiah? Like, you know. And they say Trump people have a messiah complex. Uh, again, back to this tweet because... There are so many counterpoints to this notion. Thirdly on the, on the list, counterpoint number three, God's forgiveness for our sins came because of his love for us. It was not coerced out of others by force through executive fiat. That's what the government is doing. This is forcefully taking your money and giving it to other people. And, and then number four, I, and finally, I absolutely love when non-Christians 
<laughs> they do this. They cherry pick the Bible for the one verse or theme of the Bible that supports their favorite political policy. And then they ignore the rest of the Bible. So there's a bunch of kiddos on TikTok talking about this. Uh, watch this girl, for instance. So this message is for all of the Christians that are throwing a massive fit over student loan forgiveness. Now we are expected to hear something today massive from Biden, an executive order to forgive some portion of student loans. So I would just like you to keep in mind that your entire belief system and your entire religion is predicated on the fact that a man came to earth and died to pay your debt that you couldn't pay. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> well, by the way, I just want to say she nailed the sermonization of that last point, man. Serm preachers know this. When you want to make your final point, you slow down your words. Bingo, babe. You nailed it. Uh, again, <laughs> The only this generation of uh, spoiled rotten kids can sip from an expensive Starbucks tumbler and then complain that they are financially bankrupt because of high cost of education. When I went to college, I did not eat out. I did not go to Dunkin' Donuts, did not go to Starbucks, did not go to coffee places. I didn't go to Dunkin' Donuts regularly until about 30 years old. Okay, but today's frappe sipping kids love to talk about how poor college has made them. Now listen to this, another argument based on a parable of Jesus, which I, I get to address as well. Watch this one. Check out this tweet. Conservative Christians are fully enraged at student loan forgiveness, missing the irony that their entire professed religion is based on the idea of canceled debt. Listen, I remember singing in the church, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And of course, I also remember the Lord's Prayer, which talked about debt forgiveness. And you know what else I remember from the church? The parable of the unforgiving servant. It's right there in Matthew chapter 18. A servant owed a king 10,000 talents and wanted to settle the debt. And for context, it was believed that one talent was equivalent to 16 years worth of labor. But the servant begged for patience and the king took pity on him and forgave him. This same servant, after being forgiven, came across another servant that owed him 100 denarii and he demanded full payment. And for more context, 100 denarii is said to be one day's worth of labor. So the servant that owed 100 denarii begged for patience as well. But the servant who was forgiven had none. In fact, he had this man thrown in jail until he could pay off the debt. Eventually, word got back to the king and the king was infuriated because the servant didn't forgive like he was forgiven. And so the king changed his mind and handed that servant back over to be punished until the debt was paid. So in a nation where about 90% of elected officials identify as Christian, why is there outrage about debt forgiveness? Debt forgiveness from Christians. And what does the resistance to debt forgiveness from Christians say about their actual allegiance to and reverence of the Bible? It makes you wonder. Feel free to leave your thoughts in the comments and as always, like and follow for more content. Ooh, I, I will leave my thoughts. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> the parable of the unforgiving servant uh, is about a debt that was canceled by a king, not the other subjects of the king. Okay, that's number one. In a monarchy where the taxes went to the state belonged to the king, the king had every right to do with the money as he wanted to. That's what makes it a monarchy. We live in a democracy where the taxes of the state belong to the people who then appoint other people, they're called elected representatives, kiddo, who then decide how the money is going to be spent. And if you follow the teachings of this parable, by the way, that you quote, it was an admonition to forgive others as God forgave you. So the appropriate application of this interpretation would be then to demand the students who just got forgiven their debt to pay it forward and not go spend it on themselves. Actually, maybe I am liking this idea. I should get some money back from all these kids who just got $10,000 from the government. Anyway, here, here's the deal. Uh, Christians are taxpayers, just like non-Christians. And you cannot cherry pick the Bible when the policy of how we all decide we should spend the collective whole of our money is debated, right? You, you cannot then say shut down the debate because, uh, oh, there's this weird 
applicable Bible theme that I can then slap on this policy to support it. Okay, Christians pay taxes just like non-Christians. And in a democratic state, the elected representatives spend the money as the electors, the people who made them uh, leaders and legislators, want them to. Therefore, pumpkins, uh, Christians, like all other taxpayers, can be concerned, yay, even angry, about how the government spends our money. And it is not unchristian to get angry with how the government spends money. In fact, I'm angry every day the government sends Planned Parenthood more money to kill your next generation. And these are the same people who are going to argue about the fact that Social Security is going bankrupt, and that's because we don't have enough workers to contribute to the system. Where did all those workers go? They were torn apart in the womb. But that's for another discussion, right? By the way, you want to go to the Bible? Oh, it is on, baby. Let's do the Bible and debt stuff, right? Let's do Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed them. Hmm, how are we doing with that one? Frappe sipping cappuccino aficionado. How about Romans 13, 8? Oh, no one anything. How about Proverbs 27, 22, verse 7? The rich rules over the poor, the borrower slave to the lender. And since you brought up some Old Testament verses, I'm willing to go there, like, you know, the year of Jubilee. Uh, how about this Old Testament verse? Leviticus 18:22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Or Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Drag queen story hour, anybody. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Something tells me, guys, that we're not going to see these Bible verses pumped into any TikTok promotional videos for Joe Biden's policies anytime soon. Yeah, uh, but again, I, I love it when non-Christians suddenly refer to the truth of the Bible to support their policy positions and then tell Christians to shut up because they found it in their Bible. Didn't the government hand us all money for the last two years, by the way? You know, because some people are saying uh, that um, look, at all the, look at all the money that was handed out over the last two years, you know, government handouts. And, and these are the critics of the people who are criticizing this handout. They say, well, what about the PPP loans and the COVID relief and the tax breaks for the rich and the funding the foreign wars and classic whataboutism. But, but here's the underlying problem, guys. The government is trying to solve another government-created problem. And that is really the heart of the issue from a practical standpoint. What we're ultimately seeing is the unintended consequences of government trying to help as one of my favorite presidents, Ronald Reagan said, the eight worst words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Like that's the most terrifying language that you can hear. The government tries to help by offering loans to people who probably shouldn't go to college and probably can't afford college. And then it has to pay those loans because those people probably couldn't afford to go to college or shouldn't have gone to college in the first place. And for those who are talking about the handouts and the PPP loans and all that stuff shouldn't have been spent, I agree. We should not have spent that at all. I'm 100% with you on that as well. And you should be with me on that because look at inflation. The argument that I've been making for two years on this channel is that the more money the government gives us, the lower the labor participation ha rate is, the higher the supply problem is therefore exacerbated, driving prices higher for basic needs, which pushes down, guess who? Not the upper middle class, it pushes down the, po the poor. It's classic bait and switch. The bait is free money, the switch is the poor people suffer more, not less. And I shared this information last year, if you've been following this channel, in October, when inflation was a paltry 5.4%, now it's 9.2%. 9.2% rate of inflation and no signs of it going down, in spite of the fact that everybody called it transitory about six months ago. Here's the fact. 
The U.S. government just handed around 20 million Americans, 10 to $20,000 each. And if you think inflation is going to be not a problem, you have no clue about economics. By the way, one in six Americans right now are behind on their utility bills. Now, the Washington Post stipulates that the cost to every American for this loan forgiveness plan is $75 each. That's right. You're paying $75 for these loans to get paid. I'm paying $75 for these loans to get paid. Everybody's paying $75 for these loans to get paid. So think about this. The one in six Americans who cannot pay their electric bill have to forego yet another electric bill payment to make sure that the lawyer working in the suburb of Washington, D.C. gets the government handout and the much needed financial assistance that he so desperately needs. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the proper address of our financial difficulties. Some deeper questions, and I gotta go into these as well. These, like philosophically now, why is your college degree so utterly useless that you cannot pay back what you owe for it? Like, wasn't the promise of a college education a higher income and therefore ability to pay for that education? And then why is the government, again, involved in this particular loan process at all? We really did fail to learn from the 2008 mortgage crisis, didn't we? That when government gets involved, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, when the government gets involved in providing loans to people who probably shouldn't get the loans, eventually the bills got to get paid. And when the people who shouldn't have given, been given the loans can't pay the loans, the whole country suffers. <laughs> this is, again, classic human condition. We don't learn from our mistakes. And if there are Christians out there that are listening to me and say, but, but it's helping me. Fine. It's helping you right now. It's helping you right now. But the long-term trajectory of your life will not be determined by what the government does, but by what you do. Because here's the hard theological, or I would call this existential fact or truth that I want to share with you. The human heart does as the human heart is. Remember that old movie, Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does? Well, the human heart is stupid. And the human heart does as a human heart is. If you cannot avoid bad debt now, you will not avoid bad debt later unless you have your mindset changed. This is what scripture teaches us, that we do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And yes, that applies to how we handle money because money is going to be a huge issue in our lives until the day we die. You have to develop wisdom. You have to develop self-control in money matters. You have to develop a, a, a skill like budgeting and you know, uh, reining in your desires because someday the government is going to find out that it's more expedient to take money from your generation than to give money to your generation. I am learning that right now and you will learn that soon. And frankly, the older generations are looking forward to you learning that as well. Understand the way that politicians see you though, guys. The truth is, the hard truth is, this was announced right before the midterm elections to make sure that you like Uncle Joe again because this timing is too on point. And he won't say it, so I will. Hey, kids, the president is buying your vote. Don't be fooled. Be wise. I don't care if you want to vote for him. I don't care if you love him. I, I, I think he's not doing a great job here. I don't think this is wise for the country. I don't think any of that spending during COVID was wise for the country. Of course, I don't think COVID shutdowns were wise for the country, but that's just me. Um, let me get into my thoughts as a pastor, okay? Here's my thought. Overall, Christians... You've got to make choices with God's wisdom concerning the reality you're presented with and not one promised by politicians. In other words, don't put your faith 
in these politicians. Don't put your faith in Trump. Don't put your faith in Biden. Don't put your faith in your political party or in allegiance. You've got to go to God's word, get God's truth, and 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 let that be the foundation of your life. Jesus talks about this parable where the rich man, the wise man, sorry, the wise man dug his dug down deep put his house on the rock and then built the foundation from the rock up. The, the foolish man built it on the sand and the wind and the rain came and hit both houses and they will. The winds and the rains, the economic turmoils and the ups and the downs of the economy and the market will hit both the good and the bad. All right. The question is, where's your foundation? Is your foundation on what God has said in his word or is your foundation on the promises of the politicians that are always pandering for your vote? So avoid college debt. Do your homework. Because the fundamental truth is your life from this moment will largely depend on what you do and how your heart works rather than any government action. I give you this proverb. Proverb 29, 26 says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it's from the Lord that a man gets justice. Look at that proverb again. Many seek the face of a ruler. What is that saying? A lot of people appeal to the ruler. That's, that's the terminology of seek the face. It's an epitaph. It's an epigram. Uh it's, it's a colloquialism. There we go. Of you need the ruler to come alongside you and give you favor. The government, the, the, the king, the prince, whatever. A lot of people believe that. That's what Proverbs is saying here. A lot of people look to the government and say, please, please, please help me. Okay. But, but Christians should know that it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And biblical history shows us that when we trust God and not government, when we, like Peter and Paul and James and, and the Old Testament saints before them, when we do not put our faith in our governmental leaders to support us, but in God to empower us, things tend to go really well for us. So, so understand that. And then we got to also go to the Old Testament for one small story. I want to encourage some people who are facing overwhelming debt. There's the story of a woman. She was a widow. She had sons. She was about to starve to this. And then she went in 2 Kings 4 to the prophet Elisha. And she said, your servant, my husband is dead. You know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children as his slaves. And Elijah said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not a few. Now, that's a weird command, but look what happens. Verse 4 says this, then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels the oil that you have. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. Then he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Why do I bring this story to you? Because look at what the woman does. She took her case to the prophet, not the king. She, the, the, we're going to study First and Second Kings in the deep dive this year, and the greatest irony of studying those books is that the kings are really not in charge. The prophets and the word of the Lord is in charge. And so kings come and kings go. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And time and time again, we're going to see as we study First and Second Kings, how often the people who ignored who was in the kingship and turned to the prophets and turned to the word of the Lord succeeded in spite of the detrimental economic realities created by the kings in the first place. Did you catch that? Like some Christians might be freaking out right now, like I was, about how terrible this policy is. I'm sick of the government spending. I'm sick of what the government is doing. I'm sick of the government trying to be dad and mom. I'm so sick and tired of it. 
But 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 the economic conditions created by the king, even those are not my foundation. They are not my hope. They are not my trust. My trust is in the word of the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will endure forever. So she took her case to the king, up to the prophet, not the king. Number two, she did what God said, not what the government said. Elijah was a wanted man. She could have gotten money for finding him and reporting him to the authorities, but she doesn't. She listens to Elijah and submits to his word. Then number three, she found what was in her house, not someone else's house. Woo, there you go. How about that? That's novel. And then number four, she got her kids involved. She got her kids involved in the process of getting out of debt. And parents, you need to teach your kids about financial stewardship. And if you don't have financial stewardship, you need to learn financial stewardship so you can teach your kids about financial stewardship. So let me, lend, let me end with some pastoral advice. Learn to avoid debt in all of your life. Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is slave to the lender. Number two, do your own research into what you study. And what school you want to go to. Do you even know if the school that you're going to offers the program that you want to study? And maybe some of you need to hear this. It's okay not to know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And it's okay not to go to school. It's okay not to go to college. My son just graduated high school. He's taking a break. He's not back in school right away. And I asked him why. And you know what he said? He said, I don't know what I want to do. I said, all right, that's good. Go to work. Go make some money and save and see what happens. Maybe that job will lead to another job and you'll never go to college. Maybe that job will get tiresome and then he'll eventually think, what do I want to do? But at least he's starting to think and he's not under the pressure of having this performative chase that I need the college degree to be successful because the bachelor's degree is some kind of magical potion to make me profitable. It's not. Which brings me to this point. College is not Christ. Christ is Christ. Like college is not your savior. So put God first in your life. Put God first in your life and he will bless the whole stinking mess. I'm telling you. Finally, a passage of scripture we're all familiar with. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil. They don't, they don't toil, they, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That, my friends, is your promise from God regarding your financial condition. Not government, not politicians, the Lord. Now, on to some really good news. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. So The Independent is reporting that Shia LaBeouf from Transformers movies reveals he converted to Catholicism after studying religion for Padre Pio film. He said God was using his ego to draw him to himself, drawing me away from worldly desires, uh, evidently studying with some priests. The priests kind of filled him in on lust and the pride of life and how these things are destructive. And wouldn't you know, he converted to Catholicism because of it. He says, quote, I had nowhere to go. This is the last stop on the train. There was nowhere else to go in every sense. I know that God was using my ego to draw me away from worldly desires. It's all happening simultaneously, but there would have been no impetus for me to get in my car, drive up to the monastery if I didn't think, oh, I'm going to save my career. So here he is trying to save his career and God saves him. And I think that's really wonderful. And I know I'm not Catholic and I know a lot of people who listen to me aren't Catholic, but I can appreciate the fact that the Catholic Church has stood for 2,000 years and still stands for many 
true theological things, such as Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, that he was born of a virgin, that he's coming back again, that he is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that he is the divine Son of God, that he's eternally God, and that he saves us through his blood. Okay, I can agree with a lot of things that Catholics say. I just uh, disagree on a couple other things in how we practice our faith and the whole concept of justification by faith alone. That's kind of big. But anyway... The point that I want to make here is it kind of reminds me of when Andrew Garfield made similar statements when he studied for Martin Scorsese's film Silence. This movie came out a few years ago. I don't recommend the movie. It's very sad, very disturbing. But he was studying for this uh, this movie that was about the forgotten priest in Japan. They suffered terribly for Christ. And then he said, I fell in love with Jesus and studying for the for the for the movie. The point that I want to make is simply this, that even popular Hollywood stars, when they take time to look at Christ or look into the life of Christ, it changes them deeply. Isn't that true? Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome? Like, it just kind of reminds me, like, when we look at Jesus, it changes us. So, wrapping everything up, right? What's on your mind right now? What's stressing you out? What's, what's just killing you? As you can hear the sound thunder from where I'm filming right now. What's just killing you in your mindset? Look to Christ. He'll change you. He'll save you. He'll hold you. He'll change what's going on in here so that what's going on out here does not get in here. Keep looking to Christ. With that in mind, I want to remind you that the deep dive is coming back in two weeks or possibly Wednesday. Not this Wednesday, not tomorrow, but next Wednesday. So keep that in mind. Um, I am so looking forward to that content and uh, I, I look forward to bringing that first and second Kings study to you. Big news for the channel. This is huge. Are you ready for this one? 10 questions with Tim will be happening two days from now. So 10 questions with Tim. Usually this does not happen on a deep end week, but it is happening this week because the month has turned on Thursday, September 1st. And guess what September 1st is? It's my birthday. So I will be spending my birthday with those of you who log on live and join me with 10 questions with Tim. Get your questions in at ask at timhatchlive.com or in the comments below. Guys, as always, support the channel. Our supporters are growing and that helps us get the news and advertisement out for this channel. Our channel is growing. The Instagram is growing. The social media accounts are growing because of you, because of those of you who say, man, this content is worth supporting. Thank you so much if you do that. I'm so glad that you were here. The Deep End is brought to you by timhatchlive.com. I look forward to seeing you next Next time on The Deep End, have a great, no, no, not The Deep End, 10 Questions with Tim, Thursday, 12 noon. See you then. God bless.